scripture reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 4, verses 1 through 13. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was left led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here. For it is written, He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Uh, as Jean mentioned, during uh, Advent and Christmas, uh, we talked about the birth of Jesus. Last weekend, we looked at Good Friday and Easter service at the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so for the next 12 weeks, we're going to be looking at almost everything in between his birth and his death and resurrection. And the reason why we're doing this series on the first half of the Gospel of Luke is for two reasons. Uh, number one, uh, if you're investigating and exploring Christianity, or if you're new to the faith, uh, over the next 12 weeks, we're going to sort of compile a more expansive biography of who this person Jesus is. And my hope is that as, we, as you gain more of an expansive biography of who he is, that you will come to not only like him, uh, but to have a meaningful relationship with him. The second reason why we're doing this series is for those of you who are older in the faith. Uh, oftentimes when Christmas is over and Easter is over, um, we forget how to live in light of this powerful reality. Uh, oftentimes we think of Easter as uh, new life in the future, and we forget that Easter is also about new life in the present. And to, do, to talk about this more, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Luke, and as Jean mentioned, what it means to live an upside-down life, a countercultural life, or an inside-out life. And so today, as we take a look at Luke chapter 4, the big idea in this chapter is this. How do we fight temptation when sin looks delicious? Now, temptation is something that all of us face, albeit differently. It looks differently for all of us. But temptation is something that all of us in this room face and all of us have succumbed to. But I also want us to know that even though we face temptation on a daily basis, that we can also resist it, we can fight it, and we can overcome it as well. We don't always have to succumb to it. And that's what this passage is about. Uh, my favorite TED Talk is a five-minute talk by a man named Joaquim de Posada, a.k.a. the Marshmallow Man. And in this talk, he talks about how the most important factor for success in life is self-control, self-discipline. 
And so in an experiment done near Stanford University, they gave four-year-olds a marshmallow. And they gave them two options. They said, you can either eat the marshmallow now, or you can wait 15 minutes and restrain yourself and get another marshmallow. Now, I have a two-year-old, and I know exactly what she would do. But it turns out that four-year-olds are not that different, because two out of the three four-year-olds immediately ate the marshmallow. Only one out of three had self-control and self-discipline. And in this extensive study, they followed these children for the next 15 years. And what they discovered is that the children who displayed a lack of self-control, 15 years later, most of them did not graduate from school and were unsuccessful in life. Whereas the children that did display self-control and discipline, they did graduate from school and they were successful in life. And so Posada says the most important factor for having success in life is self-control. Now, there was another study done at uh, Northwestern University led by Lauren Norgren. And what Norgren says is that temptation is more powerful than people realize. And in this study, he says that research shows that most people think that they have a higher level of restraint than they actually possess. And because they think they have a higher level of restraint than they actually possess, it actually leads to poor decision-making. So Posada is saying that the most important factor for success is self-control. Nordgren is saying is that we have an overinflated view of ourselves, and we think we have more self-control than we actually do, and it leads to poor decision-making. So here's the question. How do we gain more self-control, more discipline, more inner fortitude to resist temptation uh, when it comes? And so I want to take a look at three things from this passage. Number one, where does temptation come from? Number two, what does temptation look like? Number three, how can we overcome it? Okay. Number one, where does it come from? If you take a look with me at verses one through two, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. So in this passage, it says that temptation comes from two places. Number one, it comes from the Holy Spirit. And number two, it comes from the devil. And so if you look at the earlier part, it says, Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, you might be thinking, I thought God could not tempt us. Why does it say here that the Holy Spirit is the one that led Jesus into temptation? And the reason why it says that in this verse is because temptation actually has two definitions. We know the uh, traditional definition of temptation. Temptation is when we are lured and seduced to doing something that we know we shouldn't do. I like, I like this definition of temptation. Temptation is satisfaction at the cost of obedience. That's what temptation is. And so that's the traditional definition of temptation. But in the Greek word, there's actually another definition of temptation, and temptation can also mean testing. And here we see that it is the Spirit of God that is sending Jesus in the wilderness to be tempted uh, or to be tested. And the imagery here is that of a metal worker with a piece of gold. When a metal worker gets a piece of gold and he wants to determine how pure it is, the metal worker will submerge the piece of gold into acid. 
Now, if the piece of gold is completely pure, the acid will do nothing to it. But if the piece of gold is impure, the acid will burn away the impurities surrounding the gold. And similarly, that's what tests do for us. Tests burn away the impurities that are within us, and it refines us. It makes us more whole. It purifies us. Now, you might be thinking, okay, you clarified the definition of why Jesus is led into the wilderness by the Spirit, but why does he need to be tested? Isn't he pure gold already? Already, Isn't he perfect? And I want you to bookmark that thought for a moment because I'm going to come back to that. But for now, I want to shift our focus to us. Why does God test us? The reason why God tests us is because of the impurities that we have, our imperfections. Now, when we hear the word test, I know that a lot of us get like this tick because it has such, such a pejorative connotation to it, right? Thank goodness we're all, most of us are all, all out of school. But, you know, tests are a good thing. They're not a bad thing. Tests help gauge where something is at. So when we take tests at school, or we take the LSATs, or the MCATs, or the bar exam, tests gauge where we're at. Uh, when we test drive a car, we're gauging where that car is. When you go on dates, you kind of are testing the other person to see where the other person is at. Tests are not a bad thing. Tests are a good thing because it helps us gauge uh, where we're at. And similarly, when we experience tests in our lives, it's not so that God can see where we're at, but it's actually so that we can see where we're at. And more often than not, tests manifest itself in the form of trials. So in James chapter 1, James says that, uh, James says, consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Consider it pure joy when you face trials of various kinds because you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And so you see the tandem of trials and testing here together. So tests are not a bad thing, but a good thing. And we, we sing songs about that, right? So the, the, the new judge on The Voice, Kelly Clarkson, when she sings, what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. We intuitively know that that makes sense. We don't like experiencing it, but we do know that tests help make us stronger. So here, Jesus is now being tempted or, or tested in the wilderness for 40 days, but he's not only tested, but he's also being tempted as well. And one of the things that's so important to know about this is that oftentimes a test can look like the same thing as a temptation. The source and the intention are different. The source of testing comes from God. The intention is to grow our faith. But the source of temptation comes from the devil, and his intention is for us to lose our faith. And so if you look at the second half of verse uh, uh, Two, it says, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil, and he ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. And so here we see the second source of temptation, and it is the devil himself. You know, as I was preparing this sermon, I was literally thinking to myself, am I really going to talk about a devil in 2018? I mean, aren't we the church that's like intellectual? Am I really going to actually talk about a devil? And the answer is yes, I am going to talk about a devil today. And I want to talk about the devil via uh, Andrew Dalbanco, who is actually a secular Jew, 
and he's a professor of American Studies at Columbia University. Some of you actually might have him. He still teaches there today. And if you take a look at the first page of your bulletin, I want to read you a quote from his book entitled, The Death of Satan, How Americans Have Lost Their Sense of Evil. And this is what Del Banco says in his book. We have jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in it. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil because it implies moral absolutes and value judgments. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. We don't use moral terminology. But as the 20th century has gone on, it has gotten harder and harder to say that the Holocaust and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustments. What does it mean to call these monsters mentally disordered? Why can we no longer call them evil? The repertoire of evil has never been richer, yet never have our responses been so weak. My driving motive in writing this book has been the conviction that if evil escapes the reach of our imagination, it will have established dominion over us all. And so what Del Banco is saying is that no matter how much we psycho psychologize evil, evil is evil. Uh, we, we might dress it up with certain words, but evil is evil, and evil comes from somewhere. And what this passage is suggesting is that a lot of the source, the, the source of our temptation uh, is from the devil himself. Now, why is this so important to know? Uh, in The Art of War by Sun Tzu, I have not read this book, but I do know that Sun Tzu says in this book, Know Thy Enemy. And the reason why Sun Tzu says, know thy enemy, is this. If you don't know who your enemy is, and you don't know what they're like, you are already defeated. And similarly, if we do not know who the devil is or what the devil is like, my friends, you are already defeated. And in this passage, we get a glimpse of what he is like. And so if you take a look at verse 13... It says, when the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. And so one of the things that we learn about his strategies is that he only tempts us during opportune times. Metaphorically speaking, not theologically, metaphorically speaking, when was the only time that Superman took off his cape? It was when God became a human. This is the only time in history when an all-powerful God ever became a little vulnerable. And, and the devil not only tempts Jesus when he becomes, when he's human, but he tempts him at his breaking point after he hasn't eaten for nearly six weeks. Now, I like to watch survival shows, and I like to imagine myself uh, in that setting and how I would do and when I watch these survival shows, there's one common theme. When people have not eaten for weeks, not just days, but for weeks, they act so irrationally. They do things that they normally, ordinarily wouldn't do because they're so hungry. They're emotionally unstable and they make rash decisions, often placing themselves in danger. And here Jesus hasn't eaten for 40 days. If there is ever a moment where he is vulnerable to temptation, it is at this moment. Now, let me shift the focus to all of us. When are we the most vulnerable? 
I can give you a myriad of examples. You're new to New York. You have a good community back wherever you're from, but you're new to New York, and you don't understand how to refresh, your, refresh a new community. Or you have a community, but you have no accountability because you're a very private person. Uh, another example is that when it comes to our relationship with God, we stop trying and we stop caring, and we fail to realize that all relationships take work. So I want to read you another quote um, on the first page of your bulletin from Tim Challies uh, in an article that he wrote, When You're at Your Best, Plan for Your Worst. And Challies says, The wise Christian fights sin even when sin seems distant and dormant. There is a kind of weakness, a kind of vulnerability that may come when we are convinced of our strength, the wise nation builds its defenses in peacetime, not once the enemy has invaded its borders. The wise homeowner buys insurance before the big catastrophe, not once the flood has already risen. The wise Christian, then, fights sin even when sin seems distant and dormant. And so when are we most vulnerable? When we stop caring about our relationship with God, when we stop reading the Word, when we stop praying, when we stop coming out to church, that is actually when you are very vulnerable. But there is one other time, perhaps, when you are even more vulnerable than not caring at all, and that is when you forget who you really are. And so if you take a look at uh, verses 3 to 4, Jesus says after the first or before the first and third temptation, in verse 3, the devil said to him, if you are the Son of God. This is this is the devil questioning Jesus' identity. When are you most vulnerable to temptation? It's when you forget who you are. Uh, there was a movie that came out called Unknown several years ago, and uh, I think this movie is relatively unknown because anytime I ask uh, people the question, they haven't seen it. But the, the movie is about um, five people that wake up in a chemical warehouse after they were unconscious. And because they're, they're, they're in this chemical warehouse, they have no recollection of who they are. They have no recollection of how they got there. They don't even know what their names are. The only clues that they have are based upon some of the information that they find in the warehouse. And they find this newspaper and they realize that it's about them. And they realize that three of them are bad guys. They're criminals, kidnappers. The other two are cops who have been kidnapped by the kidnappers. Now, all five of them uh, don't know who they are. And so they're trying to figure out whether they're the kidnapper or, or the cop, and they receive a phone call at the warehouse, and it's from the other criminals. And the other criminals say that they're coming to the warehouse. And all five men are in panic mode because they don't know how to act. And so finally, one of them says, I don't know whether I'm a cop or I'm a criminal. And he says, how am I supposed to know how to act if I don't even know who I am? And that's right. Our actions flow out of our identity, which means if you forget who you really are as a son and daughter of God, if you forget that, you are vulnerable. And so here, the devil tempts Jesus and he questions his identity and says, if you are the son of God. And he subsequently follows this statement with three temptations. And here is what temptation looks like. If you take a look at the first temptation in verses 3 to 4, the devil said to him, if you are the son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone. Now, we have to do some, some, uh, some translation here because 
when we read these three temptations, it doesn't really tempt us. I don't think any of us remember the last time we were tempted to turn stone into bread. So it's not really a temptation for us. So what is the devil really saying here? What the devil is saying in temptation number one is this. If God is good, why are you in this condition? If God is so good, why are you in this predicament? Just turn the stone into a piece of bread. If God is so good, why has he abandoned you? And this is a temptation that all of us have experienced. If God is so good, why is my life going like this? If God is so good, why am I experiencing suffering? And why are there so many people around me experiencing suffering? If God is so good, why am I still single at this age? If God is so good, why are these things happening to me? You see, it's easy to trust in God's goodness when things are going well. It is a lot harder to trust in God's goodness when things are going bad. And so here, the devil, the temptation here is to doubt the goodness of God. But Jesus resists it. And so he tempts him a second time. And if you take a look at verses 5 through 8, the second temptation, the devil led him up to a high place and showed him in, in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. And here in the second temptation, uh, the devil takes Jesus up to the, uh, some high place and he shows him all the kingdoms of the world. Now, more, more likely than not, you cannot see all the kingdoms of the world, no matter how high you are up, even up the Empire State Building, even in outer space. And so what this second temptation was, was the devil giving Jesus a vision of all the kingdoms of the world, present and future, that could be his. And here, what the devil is basically tempting Jesus with is this. He has abandoned you. He's not giving you what you want, but I can. And the temptation here is that you don't have to find your happiness in God, but you can find your happiness in other things. And this is what idolatry is. When we don't find our contentment in God, but we look for other sources of contentment or meaning in life in other things. And here's why this temptation is so subtle. Let me read the final quote for us by John Piper in his book, A Hunger for God. And Piper says that the greatest enemy of hunger for God is not poison, but apple pie. It is not the banquet of the wicked that dulls our appetite for heaven, but endless nibbling at the table of the world. It is not the X-rated video, but the primetime dribble of triviality we drink in every night. The greatest adversary of love to God is not his enemies, but his gifts. And the most deadly appetites are not for the poison of evil, but for the simple pleasures of earth. For when these replace an appetite for God himself, the idolatry is scarcely recognizable and almost incurable. An idol is anything that you look to other than God where you say, I am nothing without you, and I need you to come and rescue me. An idol is anything you look to where you say, I need this, otherwise I'm a nobody. But the danger of idols, of course, is that they offer so much, but they deliver so little. In uh, 2005, after uh, Tom Brady won the Super Bowl, he did an interview with uh, 60 Minutes. Hannah and I actually saw Tom Brady a year ago at Madison Square Park, and that is one of the best-looking dudes I've ever seen. Um, 
but uh, he did this. He did this interview at uh, with 60 Minutes, and um, during at one point in the interview, Brady says, "Why do I have three Super Bowl rings and still think that there's something greater out there for me?" A lot of people would say, "Hey, man, this is what it is. I reached my goal, my dream, my life. Me? I think God. It's got to be more than just this. I mean." This can't be what it's all cracked up to be. I mean, I've done it. I'm 27, and what else is there for me? Idols promise so much, but they always underdeliver. And so Jesus resists the second temptation. And so the devil presents him with a third temptation. And so if you take a look at the rest of the verses in verse 9 through 12, the devil led him up to uh, Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus answered, it is said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And here what the devil is saying is this, okay, if God is so good and you don't want anything that I can give to you, Let's see how good he is. Jump from the temple, the highest point of the temple, and let's see if he catches you. And here the temptation uh, that the devil is offering to Jesus is the testing of God to see if he really, really is good. And this is a temptation that all of us have fallen into. When do we test God? We usually test God not when things are going well, but when things are going bad. Now, what does testing usually look like? Well, if you, if you read the Bible, more often than not, testing is always summarized by complaining and grumbling. Complaining and grumbling. And when we complain, what we're actually saying is that we, have a, we are dissatisfied with the way that God is ruling his world and with the way that he's ruling our lives. It's one thing to complain to God, that's what a lot of the Psalms are about. But when we just complain and we don't complain to God, what you're actually doing is complaining at God. And this is what the devil is trying to tempt Jesus to do, to test him. But here again, Jesus resists the third temptation and he fights it. And here is how he fights it. If you take a look at all three of the temptations, after each one, Jesus says, it is written or it is said. After each temptation, Jesus responds with Scripture. Jesus is so filled with Scripture that when he's experiencing hell, his knee-jerk reaction is to quote it every single time. And if you are going to resist temptation in your life, you have to be filled with Scripture as well. Now let's just do some real talk for a moment. I'm reading through the book of Numbers right now from my devotionals. Not, not super exciting, not super fun. Uh, sometimes reading the Bible can be boring. Uh, it can come across tedious, uh, and it can come across not exactly like a page turner. So how do we develop then a deeper love for the Word of God? Well, there's a story about a woman who uh, went to a bookstore, and she got this book off the shelf, and she purchased it, and she went home to read it by the fireplace, and as she was reading the book, she couldn't even get past chapter one. Um, 
It was boring. It didn't really read fast. It wasn't really exciting. So she couldn't even get past chapter one. And then one day, she met the author of the book. And they became romantically involved. And as a result of her beginning to love the author of the book, she began to read the book again. She picked it up again. And as she was reading through chapter one, this time she was thinking, oh, I wonder what he meant when he wrote this. I wonder what he meant when he wrote that. There was a direct correlation between her love for the book and her love for the author of the book. How do we become more filled with scripture and fall in love with the word of God? We fall more in love with the author, and that is God himself. So let me tell you a little bit about what God is like via my friend Edwin Cologne. Edwin is a, a pastor in Brooklyn, and I have never met anyone in my life, and this is no exaggeration, I've never met anyone in my life that walks with a limp like Edwin. He preaches out of brokenness and weakness. I've never met someone that is so vulnerable and transparent in my life. And he was sharing this story about how he was summarizing his life story to a friend of his. I mean, the stuff we don't really tell everyone, that stuff, the warts, the skeletons, everything. And he was just sharing all of that to his friend. And after he had finished explaining his story, describing a story, narrating it, his friend gave him the best gift he could have ever received after sharing his story. And there were just two words. You know what that gift was? Me too. Me too. And at, as soon as Edwin heard his friend say that, he immediately felt like there was a chasm that was bridged. He immediately felt like he wasn't alone that he wasn't isolated living on this island just because of two words, me too. Now, this, these are obviously two words that we're very familiar with because it's gone viral and it's identifying the abuse and the oppression that women have experienced at the hands of men for basically forever. And there is a power in these words because what women are saying is that you're not alone. And there's a unity, even though the unity is founded on oppression and brokenness, there's a power behind this because women are saying everywhere around the world, you are not alone, me too. When we read Luke chapter 4, do you know what Jesus is saying in this passage? Me too. I know what it's like to experience suffering. I know what it's like to be hungry. I know what it's like to experience temptation. I know what it's like to feel isolated and alone. Me too. This is why the author in Hebrews insists on chapter 4 that he was tempted in every way as we are. You know, one of the things I respect about God the most is that he understands what it's like to be one of us. Can you say that about any other deity in any other religion? You can't, because they never became like one of us. But one of the things I admire about God so much is that he knows what it's like to be me. He knows what it's like to be you. And that's what this passage is saying. And what this passage is also saying is that he was tempted in every way as we are, yet he did not sin. And so he's radically unlike us. 
Now, we all know that the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, but sometimes we forget that Jesus not only died for us, but he also lived for us as well. We forget that part. And this is the part I wanted you to bookmark. Uh, I said in the beginning that Jesus was tested, uh, uh, not just tempted, but tested. Now, if you take a look at each of the three responses by Jesus in Scripture, uh, with Scripture, each of the three responses comes from one particular book, the book of Deuteronomy. What is the book of Deuteronomy about? It's about how Israelites were enslaved in Egypt for 400 years. They were liberated. But for the next 40 years, they were wandering in the wilderness where they would be tested by God. And what do they do? They flip the tables around, and instead of God testing them, they test God. How do we know that? They grumble and complain. This, this water is terrible. Where's all the food? I don't want to eat this manna stuff anymore. Where are we going? What's the itinerary? You know I'm a control freak, right? God, I need to know what's happening. And for the next 40 years, they are tested and they fail test after test after test. What do you know? Jesus here is in the wilderness, not for 40 years, but for 40 days where he is tested. But unlike Israel, unlike Adam and Eve, unlike us, who fail test after test after test. Jesus passes test after test after test. He not only died for you, but he lived for you. He lived the type of life that you should have lived, and he deposits that into your account. There's a story by Doug Swaggerty, who's a pastor in New Mexico, and he recalls this time when he was in high school, and he was taking this exam that had 25 questions on it, true or false, and as Doug was taking the exam, he realized that 90% of his answers were true. Some of the others, he, he left blank, and like one or two were false. Now, whenever we take a true or false exam, we think that it's like 50-50 true or false, or like 60-40. But in this exam, 90% of Doug's answers were true. And then all of a sudden, it clicked. His older brother had taken the same exact class a year prior, and he remembers his older brother cracking up because he took this exam in this exact class, and he was laughing because all the answers were true. And it dawned on Doug that this is the same test. And so he erased one or two answers that were false. He, he circled the answer true for the ones he left blank, and he was the first one to hand in the exam. All Doug had to do was believe that someone else had passed the test for him and trust that this was the same test. What do we see in Luke chapter 4? Jesus passing the test for us. And all we have to do is trust in him, knowing that his life is now deposited, his perfect life into our account. But Jesus not only lived for us, but he also died for us. And he died for all of our sins. But here's the other thing that you need to know. He not only lived for us, he not only died for us, but we died with him. Now, what does that mean? Galatians 2.20, for I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. What does Galatians say when it says, what does that mean when it says, I have been crucified with Christ? I'm still alive. What does that mean, I have been crucified with Christ? When Paul says that, what he is saying is that your old identity, your old nature has been crucified. That's who you were, but this is now who you are. Your old identity has been killed on the cross. 
So stop identifying with who you were and start identifying yourself with who you are as a child of God. And I'll close with this story. There is a, a missionary who went to some remote village somewhere in the world, and he was sharing this, the gospel with a villager, and the villager came to faith. But one of the observations that the missionary made about this, uh, this local man was that he didn't really experience any joy even after his own profession of faith. And so the missionary came to, uh, came to the man and he said, why so downcast? Why are you so you know, not joyful? And the man replied that I have a good dog on my shoulder and a bad dog on my shoulder. And so the missionary was confused and he said, what do you mean? And so the, the local man said, the good dog tells me the right things I ought to do. The bad dog tells me the wrong things I should do. And so I'm in conflict. There's this inner war and I don't know what to do. And so the missionary said to the man, so which dog is winning? And the man replied, whatever dog I feed the most. What that man is talking about is the inner war in our hearts. The things I want to do, I don't do it. The things I don't want to do, I keep doing it. That's the inner war. So how do we feed the good dog? Read the word. We pray. We do our lives in the context of community. We don't isolate ourselves. We come out to church. We, we do whatever we can to try harder in our relationship with God, and we starve the bad dog. We be careful with what we watch with our eyes, what we fill with our minds, what we put in our hearts. We starve the bad dog. And the more you get better at feeding the good dog and starving the bad dog, the next time you face temptation, you will realize that temptation is nothing more than a toothless enemy. It has a lot of bark, but it doesn't have to have a lot of bite. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes uh, the, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life are too much for us to overcome. And so would you help us to remember that just as your spirit filled your son, that your spirit fills us now, and that we are not alone, even when we are led to the wilderness. And it is my prayer that as we experience trials and obstacles in our life, that we would see them as opportunities to grow in our faith so that we would be refined and made pure gold. In Jesus' name, I pray.